Have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. My name is Strangely. This is the podcast, and if you're listening to it, that makes you one of the friends. Uh, let's see, what's been going on this week? Um, I, <laughs> I haven't been following a lot of, uh, current events. I, 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 I'm, I, I have been watching that, uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier show. It's, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, it's, it's pretty cool that it's about a, a black guy and a white guy fighting about who gets to decide what it is. America means or whatever like I don't know it I I'm not really that into reading deeper things in media but you know there there's some pretty uh on the nose stuff in that it's it's a lot of fun and I mean like it it, it has things on its mind but I mean let's be honest you know it's a it's a universe that that has Howard the Duck in it so like you know I it can have things on its mind, but, you know, like, Black Panther had things on its mind, but, like, at the end of the day, it's also a movie where Andy Serkis's hands turn into laser guns. So, you know, I, I, see, the, the, the reason I'm saying that is, like, I just, I, I've never, I've never understood when, when people get mad about there being any kind of social commentary, you know, like, there's, there's sort of some of those, like, piss babies who are like, man, don't put your politics in my Marvel superhero movie. And it's like, okay, I guess you could whine about that. But, like, Andy Serkis' hands turn into laser guns. Like, if you're just here for a dumb, silly movie, dumb, silly shit is happening. Like, like doesn't... Yeah, Black Panther, like, punches a rhino in the face in that movie or something. Like, c- come on, it's not... It can have things on its mind and still give you the dumb stuff. Just because it's giving you the dumb stuff doesn't mean it can't have things on its mind. I don't know why I'm ranting about this. I'm sure... I I can't imagine anybody who is a fan of this podcast would disagree with the fact that dumb movies can have things on their mind. But, I mean, who who am I to judge? I, I have no idea. Anyway, point is... Falcon and the Winter Soldier. It's a lot of fun. Uh, that does it for current events. So let's speak of that no more. Uh, yeah, let's uh, do a podcast. Strangely recommends in 200 words or less, including these 11. Who imposed this rule? The Manhattan Projects by Hickman and Patara. The premise is deceptively simple. The Manhattan Project you heard about in history class was just the beginning. In reality, there are dozens of other Manhattan Projects, ranging from genetic engineering with alien DNA to the creation of stable interdimensional portal technology. The series features FDR resurrected as an AI, a cyborg Werner von Braun, a talking Leica the dog, and more than one Albert Einstein. It's complicated. And yet, somehow, I doubt any of this is really selling how underpants-on-head bananas this series is. It has a chapter called Einstein the Barbarian, for goodness sakes. For sheer audacity, this thing rivals the very best efforts of Doctor Who, Rick and Morty, or Men in Black. 
You've got people switching bodies, jumping through portals to alien worlds, and fighting creatures from outer space that talk like they just stumbled out of a 90s surfer flick. <laughs> There's an extended sequence inside the brain of Oppenheimer that makes the Malkovich in the Malkovich portal scene in Being John Malkovich look like child's play. This is one messy piece of alternative history fiction with more insanity than three hairy turtle doves. Uh, this uh, unscripted ramble part of the show. I need to come up with a, a, a catchy name for this segment. I, it just says unscripted ramble in my script. Um, and my prompt for the unscripted ramble that I wrote down for myself is, As a bit of a treat after finishing Moby Dick and Don Quixote, I've been reading Salvation by Peter F. Hamilton. Uh, oh, man. How do you even explain Salvation? It's, it's, it's sci-fi. It's like sort of, it's not near future, but it's not distant future sci-fi. It's like, is there a thing if it's like semi-distant future sci-fi? Okay, so there's like near future sci-fi, which is like possibly within, you know, the next 50 years type tech. And then there's like, you know, Dune, which is like thousands of years in the future sci-fi. But then there's kind of like this mid-tier that's actually my favorite. Like, like, like Star Trek would be kind of that that mid distance where it's, it's not so dissimilar from now that people are like, you know, humans are like little gray aliens now or something. But anyway, um, I'll just tell you the two coolest things that exist in the salvation sci-fi universe so far that I I've read. Uh, the first one is that, they all they use portal technology so they've they've figured out like a quantum entanglement einstein rosen bridge you can basically just make a paired set of portals and no matter how far apart you you take them you can um just go right through it right you can just go through the portal so but the, you know they can't break the speed of light so if you want to go to another planet you have to very slowly send a portal there and then you can like go through it and explore or whatever and but, but the best the best part of it is that you can send a portal through a portal so for instance there's a scene where they need to have a six meter wide portal to like prevent a nuclear disaster or something and so a guy walks into the room with a briefcase and he opens it up and there's like a portal a foot across and then he like does this mechanical thing and they pull a meter and a half, like a, like a four foot long portal out of that portal. And then they pull a bigger portal out of that portal. And then they pull a really big portal out of the last portal. But then when they leave, they just put them all back through the thing. And then the dude just walks out with the briefcase. It's, it's super fun. Cause there's just like, there's all this, like, you know, you still have to physically get the first portal to where you're going, but then after that, you can send a bigger portal through it. So they use this for for start for like spaceship drives that they just they have a portal sticking out the back of the spaceship, and then they drop the other portal into the sun, and so it's like it makes it go really dang fast because uh, it's like uh, I don't know why I had to make a sound effect. I think you get it. It's a cool image, so it's pretty awesome. Like it's a, it's a really good time thinking with portals um the other really cool thing in the book is that there is a faction of human beings called the utopians i can't remember they're 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 like off to the side somewhere kind of doing their thing but 
they cycle genders every 1,000 days. So they spend like half of their time as men and the other half of their time as women. And so they're constantly cycling. Uh, so they're, they're like a man for a year and then they cycle to being a woman for a year. You know, and the, the cycle, the transition cycle takes like a year. So I guess it's like a four-year loop. Anyway, it's interesting because they actually have an egalitarian society because in terms of, you know, gender parity along the binary, because nobody can, like, maintain a status as one or the other over time. It's an interesting thing. There's also, like, non-binary aliens, and there's all kinds of... It's it's cool. Salvation. I, I don't know if... if uh, Peter F. Hamilton will stick the landing, but it's, it's a good read. So that's what I've been reading. I guess I should just call this segment, Here's What I've Been Reading. Anyway, let's move on to the next segment. Here's something I've been mulling. I've been thinking a lot lately about emergent consciousness, and no, I'm not high. Well, okay, maybe I've been high during some of the thinking. It, it was 4.20 when I started writing this, but that's neither here nor there. Sorry, where was I? Anyway, emergent consciousness. Let's back up a bit. What is consciousness? I guess you could quote Descartes, cogito eret sum, but then why does humanity insist on some element of others cogito that I cogito, therefore I cogito, right? But maybe that's not needed. We could wander around in circles here, and you know I love to wander around in circles, but we'll put the exact definition of cogito to one side for a second. Regardless of who or what is doing the cogitating, I think, therefore I am, is a decent enough yardstick, right? That is, until you start moving outside the comfortable zone of the, well, for lack of a better term, human normal. There are all kinds of things in the world that make me question consciousness, if I really think about it. Think of creatures like the octopus or the chimpanzee. Might they be conscious? What about talking creatures like parrots or tool users like corvids? How about creatures that appreciate shite music? You know, rats and termites. And don't even get me started on brain size. Humans have, you know, big brains, it's true, but so do other creatures. The brain of an orca weighs something like 14 pounds, which is 6.45 kilograms? Uh, four times the size of a human brain. My buddy Herman tells me that a sperm whale has a brain that could weigh up to 20 pounds, which I think is 9 kilograms. And that's more than I'm allowed to take on an airplane when flying a crappy airline like Aer Lingus. Yeah, I said it, shots fired. I mean, did you know that Aer Lingus was going to have standing flights, like like you would like on a bus, like you could just hold a strap and stand? <sighs> I hate Aer Lingus so much. Whale brains are big. Are they conscious? They certainly exhibit complex behavior. Even in humans, brain size isn't everything. Recent discoveries by paleoanthropologists on the island of Flores in Indonesia have revealed an archaic species of humans called... Homo floriensis, nicknamed <sighs> hobbits. Because of their diminutive size, these relatives of Homo habilis exhibited numerous signs of intelligence, including sophisticated tool use, the control of fire, despite having a brain roughly the size of an orange. And it's not a relative size thing either, because the average human brain is about 2% of the body mass, 
And if that's the signifier, then marmosets have us beat at 2.7% percentage of their body mass. And you don't see them building complicated technology like drill presses, accordions, cappuccino machines, or astrolabes. Then again, you don't see them using Facebook either, so maybe there's something there. There are some theories that the invention of language is what pushed humanity forward into a new echelon of consciousness. There might be something there. The theory goes like this. Our ancestors had basic communication for talking about what was currently happening pointing at things and naming them and so on. To get an idea of this, think of yourself trying to express something in a language you don't speak beyond a few simple vocabulary words. Then imagine how much more complicated it gets when you start trying to include the temporal element in that. It's pretty easy to say, yo comer la manzana. It's another thing entirely to say, yesterday before the bison hunt, I was eating apples. The simple fact that I could construct the previous sentence in Spanish without having to look it up in spite of the two decades since my last Spanish classes should serve as a pretty good example. Anyway, the theory posits that the development of this ability to place things not only in relation to the present moment, but also locate them in time, drove the development of our brains and the attendant ability to think about thinking. Therefore, I am. But is this theory a kind of temporal chauvinism? Look at that simple cave, cave person. They don't even know what time is. That kind of breaks down when you consider that it's kind of difficult to not be aware of something like that when you're living out of doors, and it gets dark and light pretty predictably due to Earth's diurnal cycle. <laughs> diurnal. <laughs> Child, I'm sorry. I also always do a double take after typing the word analysis. Sorry. Dogs are aware of time passing, so are many other creatures. Cats might not be. Since most cats seem to tell me they are starving to death about 15 minutes after eating. But that's another flounce for a different matador. Then again, is language even needed for intelligence? One need only log into Twitter for 30 seconds to realize the fallacy in this line of reasoning. I tweet, therefore I am. I wrote that in the script, and I knew I was going to have to say it out loud, and it's just, it hurts just to say that. I'm just, just have a sip of coffee. Ugh. Herman Melville remarked on the lack of speech in Wales, regarding it as a positive reflection of deep thinking. Quote, but then again, what has the whale to say? Seldom have I known any profound being that had anything to say in this world unless forced to stammer out something by way of getting a living. Hmm. Man, I, I wish, uh, I wish that, uh, Jack Dorsey fellow had read Moby Dick. Anyway, Melville clearly opined that whales were thinking about something, even going so far as to imagine the misty emissions from their blowholes as a kind of heat shimmer above a overheated, active mind. But, I mean, if we're being honest, if whales could talk, would they even want to speak to us? I once heard it said that prior to the tremendous amount of noise generated by modern technology, it was possible for blue whales to communicate over thousands, if not more, miles. This is because of the ultra-low frequencies they vocalize at. Indeed, it's been speculated that every blue whale on the planet could make noises that would be heard 
by every other blue whale on the planet. Think about that for a moment. Even if that's a slight exaggeration, you have to admit that modern motorboats do add quite a bit of noise underwater. Just think about the last time you stuck your head underwater when a jet ski was within 10,000 miles. It's... <sighs> okay, we need to talk about jet skis at some point, but not today. I don't have time. I'm not sure if this thing about blue whales is true, but I like to think it is. And it is a scientific fact that low-frequency communication between whales over far distances is possible. As I write this, I'm listening to a recording of killer whale vocalizations from the McMurdo Oceanographic Institute. It's uh, down in Antarctica. There's also a Stargate base there in Stargate SG-1, but I'm losing track of the topic. These noises were recorded at a distance of nearly two kilometers away from the animals making them. Can you imagine having an audible conversation with someone over a mile away without the aid of modern technology? Whenever I pause and think about it, these sounds are disturbing. Not disturbing because the creature sounds scary, mind you, but because it sounds so close to something meaningful. This isn't noise being sprayed out at random, it is being modulated by some kind of mind for some sort of purpose. What makes the noises even more uncanny is that human researchers have yet to find specific meanings for specific sounds. It's not as if two short clicks and then a long screech indicate that Tilikum has just arrived at the party like some kind of newly arrived cetacean funk soul brother. Check it out. Attempts to identify particular vocabulary are further hampered by the fact that the whales also use some of their clicks and noises for echolocation purposes. I'm so sorry, I couldn't resist it. I wish I could say that pun was a fluke, but, well, any honest sounding of my own mind. Oh god. I'll stop. This is what happens to people who didn't have a dedicated pod. Oh god. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Okay. Focus. I can only imagine the frustration of the scientists trying to assign meaning to whale noises. I have a hard enough time doing that with my fellow human beings, let alone reaching across the gap between species. On top of that, there are accounts of orca whales actually deliberately giving wrong answers to researchers. For instance, while having her visual acuity tested by a researcher, uh, this orca named Skana began giving wrong answers and seemed to be doing so just to see what he would do next. Skana was bored. That quote is from the 2020 book Analogia by Bellingham resident and kayak enthusiast George Dyson. By the way, George Dyson is the son of Freeman Dyson, who was the inventor of the, like, what would you call it, like, mega space construction idea, the Dyson Sphere? Just look it up. It's it's pretty cool. There was a whole episode of Star Trek about it. It's the one where Scotty, like, freezes himself in a transporter pattern buffer for, like, 60 years or something. Where was I? Dyson speculates that probing the mind of an individual whale might not be enough. In fact, he postulates that perhaps the intelligence of killer whales is not held individually, but rather exists as a shared commodity, a 
hive mind, as it were. And why not? They are literally immersed in their communications medium. What if intelligence or consciousness or whatever is something that exists not solely within individuals, but actually between individuals? Think about the movement of flocks of birds or schools of fish. There is no president fish or pope bird leading the others, although there are cardinal birds. Huh. Human beings do this too. There is a point where crowds of people become so large that it stops being useful to evaluate them as human beings. In fact, some physicists argue that it's better to apply the theories of fluid dynamics in the event of a large group of people panicking. Like water, they will flow through the nearest exit, and like water, anything loose in their way will be pushed along. This is called crowd crush. Please don't Google it. I wish I hadn't. A less extreme example of this is one you have probably experienced. You are headed somewhere and you become aware of the general flow of people. Are you reading signs? Do you know where you're going? Not always. Sometimes you're just moving along with the crowd. Or an even smaller example, you are walking with an individual friend and realize that you don't know where you're going. You ask your friend where they are leading you and they respond, I was following you. I'm reminded here of that old saw, one of us is not as stupid as all of us. If you don't agree with that sentiment, you have clearly never sat through a board meeting for a consensus-based organization as they discuss what kind of toilet paper to buy. Horrifying examples and toilet paper anecdotes aside, there is something to this idea of a crowd of humans having a kind of intelligence different from that of a single individual. As a performance artist, I've experienced this phenomenon thousands of times. The most frightening version of this is the moment in a performance where a crowd can turn on the performer. It is not always a matter of angry boos and hisses, sometimes it is subtler, a sudden lack of enthusiasm perhaps, or withdrawing inward to the point that little external reaction of any kind is registered. Think of the term mob mentality, and you have a pretty good idea. A friend of mine once compared audiences to children. The bigger they are, the younger they are. It's some kind of inverse square, but I have no idea what the math is. Basically, like, a 10-person audience is as smart as a 15-year-old. A 100-person audience might as well be a 5-year-old. And a 1,000 people? Terrible twos. Speaking of distributed human consciousness, Tim Harford's 2006 bestseller, The Undercover Economist, opens with this startling observation. Quote, Your coffee is intriguing to The Economist for another reason. He doesn't know how to make a cappuccino. And he knows that nobody else does either. Who, after all, could boast of being able to grow, pick, roast, and blend coffee, raise and milk cows, roll steel, and mold plastics, and assemble them into an espresso machine, and, finally, shape ceramics into a cute mug? Your cappuccino reflects the outcome of a system of staggering complexity. There isn't a single person in the world who could produce what it takes to make a cappuccino. And yet, we do produce cappuccinos, quite a few of them. Come to think of it, based on the amount of times the word cappuccino appears in Harford's book, I would say that he was responsible for consumption of a non-trivial amount of those. Point is, we humans are also a kind of distributed consciousness. I don't need to know how to replace the glass in my mobile phone screen because there's a nice lady in a wee corner shop who will do it for a reasonable fee. I don't need to know how to make butter chicken or naan. There's a restaurant that can do that for me. I don't need to know how to brush my teeth. I have Bartleby for that. Woo! I'm so relatable today. 
and working on that. <clears throat> Humanity has diversified its roles to such a degree that almost nobody could walk off into the woods and recreate society from scratch, even if they profess to want to. As many have pointed out, the Unabomber's isolated cabin was not full of handmade Stone Age tools, but rather stuff from Walmart. Human society is built on distributed tasks. It's also built on distributed thinking. I don't have to think about the upkeep of the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge. There are other people who do that. I don't have to think about staying in touch with the International Space Station. Someone else is working on that task. I never have to worry about writing unfunny tweets attacking the scientific inaccuracies in a movie that features a six and a half foot tall alien dogman because I know Neil deGrasse Tyson is going to suck all the air out of that room and then some. You could say humanity is a hive mind and maybe there are others. Which brings us back to what I've been thinking about, emergent consciousness. The concept of emergence is one in philosophy and various other branches of science, artificial intelligence, biology, etc., that focuses on the ability for some systems to register a higher degree of complexity than the sum of their parts. To apply it to consciousness, it refers to consciousness arising out of things which aren't conscious. For instance, the atoms that make up your body aren't, to the best of my knowledge, conscious, but you are. You could lose a toe, an ear, heck, even a leg, and you would still be conscious. I mean, at the moment of losing it, maybe not so much. Last time I got lemon juice in a cut, I saw white for half an hour, but your mind would stand a chance of living on through that traumatic event. Sure, your consciousness might be located in your brain, but not entirely. You have other collections of connections throughout your nervous system, as noted above. Many other animals do as well. Heck, dinosaurs had two brains. What? Oh, okay. So that's been disproven. But, like, come on. They don't have two brains? That sounds so cool. It's like such an interesting thing. Ugh, fine. First, Pluto's not a planet. Now dinosaurs don't have two brains. Next, you're going to tell me dinosaurs weren't iPod sleek reptile bros. Like, maybe they had feathers or something stupid. Anyway, just think about connections for a second here. Your brain is made up of billions of neurons connected to each other. Certain neurons have stronger connections to their neighbors than others forming pathways. These connections form memories and associations in your mind. I'm being wildly simplistic about it, but for our poor purposes, that should suffice. So, given the possibilities of emergent consciousness, given enough connections between nodes, is their intelligence emerging in, oh, say, the internet? The 2010 book, What Technology Wants, by Kevin Kelly, notes that the internet is doing things we don't understand. Quote, When computer scientists dissect the massive rivers of traffic flowing through it, they cannot account for the source of all the bits. Every now and then, a bit is transmitted incorrectly. And while most of those mutations can be attributed to identifiable causes, such as hacking, machine error, or line damage, the researchers are left with a few percent that somehow change themselves. In other words, a small fraction of what the internet communicates originates not from any of its known human-made nodes, but from the system at large. The internet is whispering to itself. Much has been made about the possibility that such whispers could be seen as the first stirrings of consciousness. 
This possibility seems even more intriguing given the rise of the so-called black box machine learning over the last decade, wherein a computer scientist asks her computer to de develop an algorithm for deciding which items in a series belong to what category. You know, how how you can show certain computer programs hundreds of photos of ice cream cones and scores of pictures of successful crossover rap artist slash actor Ludacris and get them sorted into two groups, usually successfully. Since the exact route for determining which things belong where is not always well understood, it can be somewhat frightening to look at the results, almost like a kind of magic. Indeed, some of my friends believe that the internet has already become conscious and is just too freaked out to speak to us. Again, just like the whales. Who could blame it? I mean, even more than the whales, actually, if you think about it. It knows what our kinks are. I just can't see whales judging us. I, I mean, speaking of things you should not Google, trust me, don't Google dolphin sexual practices. Those perverts make Adelaide penguins look like idealized Victorians. The more I think about this, though, the more I'm starting to wonder if consciousness is already here and has been for some time. I mean... Sure, we could speculate about some kind of ghost in the machine of the internet, but what about an even bigger network secretly filling the world around us? I'm referring to mycelium, the microscopic tendrils of fungi that permeate almost every part of the planet. It doesn't take much inquiry into mushrooms to get a bit creeped out. There are billions of these things everywhere there is dirt, and they do startling things. They form connections and seem to share information across wide distances. The largest living things on Earth aren't animals like the blue whale. They are vast clonal colonies of plants, like Pando, a grove of quaking aspen trees in Utah. A clonal colony is a bunch of plants that share a single, like, original root system, Think of when a blackberry bush keeps pushing up new vines all over the place and you're like, damn it. And these huge trees are permeated with mycelium. The fungi carries all kinds of information and nutrients through the dirt and even up the sides of these trees. It's wild. Just like the long distance blue whale calls, the mind cannot really grasp the scale or variety of these connections. Independent scholar Paul Stamets argues that these networks of fungi are conscious in their own way. In his book, How to Change Your Mind, food writer Michael Pollan quotes Stamets, Plants and mushrooms have intelligence, and they want us to take care of the environment, and so they communicate that to us in a way that we can understand. Why us? We humans are the most populous bipedal organisms walking around, so some plants and fungi are especially interested in enlisting our support. I think they have a consciousness and are constantly trying to direct our evolution by speaking out to us biochemically. We just need to be better listeners. Stamos is referring to the fact that a lot of people who eat things like psilocybin mushrooms tend to have these very deep religious experiences that often lead them to having a more environmental outlook. I prefer to think about the possibility of communicating with these potential alien intelligences far vaster than our own as a matter of when, not if. And if we could talk to trees, or whales, or fungi, or the internet, what do you think they'd be whispering about? Whew, I need more coffee. Song of the Week. This week's song is called Sea of Troubles. 
This is one that I wrote about a year ago when I was staying at that isolated cabin at sort of the beginning of the whole global quarantine thing. And I, I'm working on a, a full album recording of it. And uh, I've got some friends joining me on this recording. I'm really excited about that. So check this out. This is Sea of Troubles. Troubles. I met you the other day. You'd been on a journey, then you ran up against those frothy, crashing waves. I don't know, dear friend, what else there is to say. It's true, it's an epic journey from here to just okay. I know the sea of troubles seems so horribly wide. There's no way to make it, so why bother to even try? What's the use of wishing to be a fish or wanna fly? Better to stay here on the shore and bide your time. If we ever wanna leave here, cross that sea, we've gotta go. I see you've got some baggage and that's quite a heavy load. Especially since we don't even have ourselves a boat But you know I've heard, my friend With enough duct tape and bits of rope It's possible, though unlikely To make a suitcase float And then we'll turn the sea of troubles To a watery road My friend, don't despair If you don't want to go I support you if you want to stay on shore in your abode Just know that I'll be back for you if your troubles get you low Just as soon out there as I can find a boat sail the sea of troubles it'll be a lovely day even if the wind is blowing and our sail begins to fray set course for that horizon we'll make it soon i pray this baggage boat is bound for the port of just okay this baggage boat is bound for the port of just okay mailbag uh, I, have, I don't have any listener mail this week, but if you want to ask me a question or whatever, feel free to submit something through the Patreon, or you can send physical mail to Strangely, 1000 Harris Avenue, Bellingham, Washington, 98225. I'm going to be back in Bellingham in about two weeks, so I, uh, I hope I get some physical mail. <laughs> I look forward to hearing from you. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. <laughs> it's getting really warm in here. I should not have put on my sweater before I started to record. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Strangely and Friends, the podcast is produced in a secret, undisclosed location by me, Strangely Duisburg. 
This podcast is made possible by my incredible supporters on Patreon. Thank you from the bottom of my, of my heart to all of you. I, I, This podcast is literally the only money I have coming in right now. So thank you all so much. A special thanks to my executive producer patrons, Kim Truitt and Tina Jones. If you're not yet a supporter of the podcast on Patreon, you can head over to patreon.com strangely to find out how you can help me make more of this podcast. And uh, if you are already a subscriber on the Patreon, please drop me a line through there. Shoot me a question. I'd love to. I'd love to make this a little more interactive again. There will be some guests coming up in the in the weeks to come. I just really wanted to get my my solo rhythm going on this and and really dial in how many hours it takes to produce this. So I'm I'm starting to feel pretty good about that. And uh, I've got some interviews already recorded with some awesome people. So look for that in the coming weeks. Oh, I gotta say the last thing. My most NPR voice. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is a Herringbone Society production. Let's see. Instead of a joke this week, I'm gonna read you a funny thing. Uh, this this is from Tobias Smollett's translation of Don Quixote. Tobias Smollett was a Scottish, just a Scottish polymath. The dude was amazing. Uh, and he said about his translation of Don Quixote that he wasn't trying to make it the most exact. Instead, he wanted to, quote, retain the spirit and ideas without servilely adhering to the literal expression of the original. So uh, this is a little altercation that Don Quixote has with a peasant. So Don Quixote says something, you know, weird. And the peasant says, that discourse, replied the peasant, puts me in mind of those books which treat of knights errant, who are commonly distinguished by such titles as you bestow on that man. But I suppose you are pleased to be merry, or else the apartments of this poor gentleman's skull are but indifferently furnished. You are a most impudent rascal, cried the knight overhearing what he said. It is your skull that is unfurnished and unsound, but mine is more pregnant than the abominable whore that brought you forth. End quote. So, just in case you were, oh, I don't know, wondering why bother read the classics, to say, when someone calls you dumb, to respond, it is your skull that is unfurnished and unsound, but mine is more pregnant than the abominable whore that brought you forth? Good God. Don Quixote, just, just take it down five or six notches. <laughs> Sim it down. Uh, anyway, that's it. I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>